Welcome to Mark Approved Marketing. And today is the first time we have someone on the show who I, I told him I don't know how to introduce him. So I'm just going to say he's the co-founder of Zillow, Hotwire, Picasso, and a countless other companies. And if you didn't already guess, Spencer Raskoff, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Kevin. I'm very happy to be here. Great to, great to speak with you today. There's, I mean, I've got pages of questions, uh, <laughs> but I think we should start with Picasso because that's that's that was the reason for the initial reach out on my part is it's fascinating what's happening. And, and I just wanted to make sure that in the new construction world, we were paying attention. It's not, it's yeah. not directly related at all at the moment, but it's still something to watch out for. So it's a little, so give it's us- a little, yeah, it's a little related in certain markets. So yeah. So Picasso is my new startup. It lets people buy a portion of a second home. And so the concept here is that most people's second homes sit empty most of the year and instead, there's a better way to own a second home. Through co-ownership, you can buy an eighth or a quarter or a half of a second home through Picasso, and then you co-own that home with other families, and you use the Picasso app to schedule visits to your home, and Picasso does the property management. So Austin Allison, the founder of Dot Loop, which Zillow acquired, Austin and I started the company a couple of years ago. We've got a couple hundred employees, and we're in about 25 markets in the US and in Europe. And the company's growing very, very quickly. And the relevance to NewCon is that a number of our homes are new construction. So we buy a lot of homes from home builders. Uh, we work with a number of home builders to spec out homes directly. So in markets, for example, like Napa Valley or Tahoe mm-hmm. or Aspen or Vail, four of our most successful markets, we have close partnerships with uh, infill builders in those, in those areas. And we're buying new construction homes. We fractionalize the homes into eighths and we resell them. And we've got great relationships with home builders in that way. And we hope to grow them even further as we move into new markets. That's that's fascinating. I didn't realize that was already underway. I don't want to get sidetracked because this is not where I wanted to go. But have any of the, the new con folks taken upon a project that they might not have otherwise done because they understood the ability to fractionalize it with, with your partnership? Not yet, but soon. Yeah. Um, I imagine that, that's going to become. Yeah. And I mean, so for example, as we, as we launch, well, we're, we're moving into Mexico rapidly. And I think we have a project in Spain that would meet the def, you know, the example you just provided. Yeah. You know, when it's done that way, we can also build co-ownership amenities into the homes from the beginning. So all of our homes, whether they're used or new, we do owner closets or owner lockers in the garage. And so if we know right from the very beginning, working with the home builder, that it's going to become a Picasso, then we can build certain amenities. Uh, straight into the into the yeah. Space. I, I mean, everyone's aware of single family build for rent. I feel like we need to coin a new phrase right now: uh, SFBCO. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Single family you heard it, build you heard it for ownership. Heard it here first. And I know you've started this journey with Austin. What what is it about Austin Allison as an individual that made it easy for you to want to team up with him again? Oh wow! Uh, like I think lot. he's the most underrated entrepreneur in in the real estate world am i wrong yeah well not you, underrated maybe that's not fair no no, no you, you you're you're totally right i mean that's rapidly changing because his profile right, is rising right. because of picasso's success but but i mean i yeah i mean let me let me rave about austin for a second because he's everything i look for in a co-founder i mean i i invest in a lot of startups and so i meet tons of founders i think i had 
uh, 550 startup pitches last year is what <laughs> I was on. I was on the receiving end of that. You just that. made me tired. Um, and so I talk with a lot of founders and what Austin has is exactly what you'd look for. He's got incredible grit. You know, he, he grew up with very little and he made it on his own. He's a second time founder. His first company, Loop, was venture funded and then he sold it to Zillow and he built a great company at Loop and a great culture at Dotloop. And then he stayed at Zillow for four years. So he has kind of the big company tech executive experience from having been in Zillow. He has the startup experience from having started Dotloop and he's had an exit. And he also has great founder product fit. So what I mean by that is there's no such thing as just a great founder. There's only a great founder for a particular idea. And Austin is the right founder for Picasso. Why? Because he understands prop tech incredibly well but he also is this persona. He has had his life changed by owning a second home, in his case, in Tahoe. And the memories that he has, you know, he has created for him and his family and friends at that second home in Tahoe are really inspiring to him. And he's truly on a mission to create a product where tens of millions of more people around the world can experience that joy of second home ownership through co-ownership. And, you know, I, I mean, you should have him on sometime and you'll hear him talk even more passionately about how connected he is to that mission, but it is, it's really genuine and that's what drives him. And that's one of the keys to Picasso's success. Spencer can't even see my show notes, but he's providing me perfect segues. So you just said tens of millions (laughs) of people enjoying co-ownership. I was having breakfast with uh, some of my friends in real estate here in Columbus. And and one of them, you know, went down the, the now typical path of, Oh yeah, these are these wealthy people buying their and I was like, look, Tesla started out as a car company. Exactly. Serving a certain group. And and I just feel like the the revenue that you can get without having to have unit scale yet to build the platform will eventually let you move down downstream to more mm-hmm. affordable properties over time. Cause you can't support, you don't want to learn how to do this business perfectly on three hundred thousand dollar homes. Right. Is that- yeah. No. So, the, I mean, we talk about Tesla a lot. That's exactly the right analogy that we're following. So, if you look on the Picasso website right now, you'll see a lot of luxury homes. You'll see whole house, whole homes worth five to fifteen million that are you know divided into eighths, um, and those are all luxury homes. But the the mission and vision of this company is very much to bring it to the masses or closer to the masses. We talk a lot at Picasso about Lake Norris, which I've never been there, but I believe that's a lake uh, near Cincinnati where Austin grew up, you know, and you can buy a great house there. He tells me for $500,000. Yeah. And uh, you know, the hope is that Picasso can become mainstream enough that you can buy an eighth or a quarter of that home for, you know, just a fraction of that price. And so that's very much in our sights. Uh, we're just starting at the higher end and then, and then yeah. we'll flex into, you know, you got to build the market. team and have the margin yeah. uh, on, on the product. So it makes perfect sense. And, uh, and I fantastic. I, I think that that's right, obviously the right way to go. Moving towards prop tech more generally, mm-hmm. what, what trends or pain points do you feel like you're surprised that people haven't tackled yet? <laughs> well, you know, think about the funnel, right? From at the top of the funnel, you've got search and discovery, trying to find listings. Then you move further down the funnel towards seeing homes and then further down the funnel towards actually buying and selling. And then at the very bottom of the funnel, kind of payment and title and escrow and and all the ancillary services, financings. That's the history of PropTech for the last 20 years. So, you know, let's focus first on the search part. 
the first generation was realtor.com and other early portals that had a paid classifieds model. They took the newspaper listings model where listing agents would pay to advertise listings and they brought it online. In the case of realtor.com, they charged listing agents for photos. And so that was that first era, 1995 to 2005. And it sounds crazy thinking about it now, but that was their business model was to put free listings with four photos and then call listing agents and say, hey, if you want all 25 photos, pay us. If you want and to make the great... consumer happy, you have to pay us more money so you can give them the pictures they want. <laughs> exactly. And But actually, it, it was true in the other categories of prop tech as well at the time. So think about early lead gen for home valuations, right? You had home gain and house values, which did the same thing. They advertised, find out what your house is worth, and then you'd fill out a form and they'd sell your email address to buy side real estate agents or sell side agents that would contact you. And so and also in lending, that was the lending tree model. It was, and even the bank rate model was sort of fill out a form and then people will bug you. And so all the goodies, all the good stuff was kind of behind, you know, behind this wall where the service provider was paying to provide it to you. So that was 95 to 2005. Then the Zillow Trulia era of kind of 2005 to 2015 was about empowering the consumer with access to information. And so again, we're still innovating at the top of the funnel, at the search part of the funnel here. And that era is basically over now. You know, I think most of the innovations, uh, including 3D walkthrough, video tours, you know, the, the transition, the platform shift towards mobile, like all that, that story has been written. Yeah, we just got to get the metaverse on Zillow. <laughs> well, actually, it's a, it's a great point, Kevin, because there, there may be another platform shift, you know, afoot. The platform shift from desktop to mobile is what allowed Zillow and Trulia to leapfrog in terms of audience over realtor.com. Mm. And it was, and they also had a, a, a different business model. Their business model um, charged listing, sorry, charged buyers agents for leads, and that allowed them to have all the photos. They didn't have to charge listing agents for photos. So, because of a business model innovation and a platform shift, they took the audience leadership. Um, now, if we are in the middle of a platform shift towards some AR, VR, Meta future, then it's possible that Zillow could be disrupted in terms of audience leadership. And there could be some other startup that does a better I feel, job. I feel like they'd have to have a CEO that was completely not paying attention to, to trends, which, you know, maybe. They, anytime know. I mean, a company gets big, they're going to be slower to innovate for sure. But I, I feel like um, it, it would yeah. be... I mean, this is the classic, you know, great book and and lots been written on the innovator's dilemma. I mean, mm -hmm. like if you're at Zillow right now, you could still, you could be very much awake and not asleep at the wheel, but still underfund a platform shift because you're protecting your core. And, and there's and, just a lot of different directions. Yeah. You know? And you don't know, I mean, are you, are you going to plant seeds and make investments in, in all these emerging platforms? Whereas there are startups going after each of them and maybe one yeah. really cracks it. So I don't know if there's a real platform shift. I don't know if people are really going to search for real estate, you know, through a different, through a different, but uh, for now search is kind of uninteresting. Yeah. So, so yeah, exactly. So, so to continue going, <laughs> you know, the current era that we're basically innovating on is a little deeper funnel. It's the transaction itself. And the transaction itself, there, there's lots of innovation happening. There's obviously iBuying, which we'll probably talk about where home, you know, home sellers benefit from this service of selling their home. There's a lot of innovation happening on the buy side where you've got companies like Fly Homes and Ribbon, um, investors in both, which are helping people buy before they sell. There are other shared let's call it shared cap table products like an easy knock where I'm an investor or Divi, which are, are doing other innovations around the transaction and then deeper funnel towards payments. You've got a lot of innovation happening around the mortgage. You've got companies like Tomo where I'm, yes, I'm an investor yeah. and, you know, and others that are, are trying to digitize the mortgage. And then 
even at the very bottom of the funnel, you got title escrow and closing services where there's also innovation happening. So that's, that's where we are today. And, um, it's a lot messier. I'd say it's, it's, it's a much messier mm. thing to try to disrupt and innovate upon than search, you know, in retrospect, search seems pretty yeah. easy. Well, that, and- that's what it feels like to me, Spencer, <laughs> is even Katera was like in this example of where digitization meets the, the physical world. And then inherently things get messier. Yeah. I mean, the, a lot of stuff with mortgage and the transaction, it's it's regulation and and policies and procedures. And there's still a human element there, but ultimately the conversion to the to the digital world seems more, albeit difficult, straightforward as an end game. But but then the next step is you got to physically move the dang boxes or or build the structures. And- yeah. Well, you're right. So I I'm not I'm not as I mean, you're way more familiar with that part of technology innovation in prop tech than I am. I'm I'm not an investor in any of those, but I, I see a lot of those pitches. I mean, I've I've seen dozens of like Sorry, what are they? They're called ADUs, right? The mm-hmm. things in Portable the backyard. Guardians, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've seen lots of pitches around, you know, we'll drop an ADU in your backyard and we'll share the rental income with you or, yeah. you know, and then, you know, lots of things around 3D printing of houses and, you know, prefab offsite, home construction, et cetera. Like there's tons of innovation happening in that world. And my friend, Fred Twami is a great resource on that. If you, you know, you should have him as a guest, a guest sometime. Yeah. But he's an investor in many of those companies and, and a real innovator in that space. But um, you're right. There's tons happening. Well, in, in everything that. that you've talked about in terms of search and transaction leans into what the consumer really wants. And I feel like that's where in the physical world, when we're talking about offsite construction, modular, 3D printing, whatever, it, it gets the consumer what they want in terms of affordability or mm-hmm. availability potentially, but not necessarily in the innate structure itself. But there's some current compromise of less personalization less high-end finishing. And, you know, I've jokingly called the the concrete 3D printed homes. It's, you know, if you want to live in concrete poop, it it just, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's it's clearly different. And so the consumer has to compromise where everyone yeah. else in the transaction of search is saying, give the consumer exactly what they want, easier, faster, less friction. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I will. I, so again, I'm not, I'm no student of construction. I'm, you know, I'm a frustrated uh, <laughs> customer having, having built a couple houses that right. have been, you know, uh, you know, over budget and, and uh, much longer than, uh, than expected. I would observe as sort of a consumer of home building that it is a little bit strange that new construction is still built on property, like on site. Like mm-hmm. that's a little, you know, you don't, Nothing else is really manufactured like on site in that way. Um, right. But I, but I'm no expert. This is not. No, my, and I, my I, area. I, I'm not. I'm not necessarily an expert there either. But I think a lot of it just has to do with the consumer's unwillingness at different price points mm-hmm. to say I, I'm okay just having three choices. Right. There, there's true. great startups uh, that that are doing disruptive things in, in offsite and modular construction, but they have you know two floor plans, take it or right. leave it, and there's options, right. but. I think that's that's one of the hurdles we have to overcome. You know, right. I think I think that's overcomable. I, you know, it, I this, this 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 reminds me. This is a bit of a tangent, but my first startup was a company called Hotwire, which provided great hotel discounts by hiding the name of the hotel until after you purchased it. So you go to Hotwire; it still is around today. It's owned by Expedia. You go to Hotwire, and it says, "Hey, there's a four star hotel in downtown San Francisco for hundred dollars, and a five star hotel for hundred fifty dollars, and it's in this neighborhood. It's in the Union Square area, but you don't know the name of the hotel." And for the first couple of years, when we were uh, marketing it, 
we were kind of apologizing for that bug. We're like, mm. you know, to the consumer, we're like, yeah, like it, it's kind of a bummer. You don't know the name of the hotel and after you purchase, <laughs> but, but, you know, isn't it great? You get great discounts that, you know, so that yeah. was kind of how we try to put a positive spin on it. And then we realized it was actually a feature, not a bug, because when you go to Expedia and you look for a hotel in San Francisco, there's hundreds and hundreds of choices and, and reading the reviews and comparing and do I want a Hilton or a Marriott or an independent hotel? And like, yep. it's actually overwhelming and maybe reducing the paradox of choice to just a couple is valuable. So I think that this conundrum that you're describing for home builders could potentially be turned around if properly marketed. A hundred. And that's really, it's really what I, you know, the restaurant analogy, front of the house, back of the house, the back of the house and our space is unwilling to curate and iterate enough. It's like, well, we got those two widgets that we designed in terms of floor plans and we're going to ride that for 10 years instead of being more nimble and saying we need to develop a, a way to, to iterate and still only have two or three, but they're always the right two or three. Mm-hmm. And I think someone will eventually get there. Okay. Last, last prop tech question. Do you feel like you're drawn toward to prop tech? I mean, you've, you've done so many things <laughs> and continue to do more things. Is it because of this and maybe not just you, but, but entrepreneurs and VCs in general, is it the size of the TAM? Or is it a love of housing? Is it just feeling like there's more slowness to to change there? What is it about? Well, so my, you know, so when I started Zillow with co-founders in 2005, we were coming from the online travel industry and, you know, none of us had any particular love for real estate, but we saw an opportunity. We saw an industry that was not consumer oriented, where the main tech leaders at the time, as we already discussed, were just not prioritizing the consumer. So that was the opportunity. I then fell in love with real estate, you know, as I got more into it. And I love houses. I love beautiful houses. I love going to open houses for fun. My real estate agent here in LA takes me to see houses all the time just for fun because they're gorgeous. And so I do like that aspect of it. It's sort of the intersection of design and finance. And those are two things that I'm I'm pretty into. Now, that having been said, since I retired from Zilla three years ago. I, I mean, I started Picasso and I spent a lot of my time on Picasso, but I'm also a very active angel investor. 75 and Sunny is the name of my firm. It's based in LA. And about a quarter of my investing is in LA tech companies. And last year I did 40 new investments in new startups and 12 follow-on investments in, in companies I was already an investor in. Of those 52 checks, about a quarter were in prop tech. <laughs> so I'm investing in lots of other things, future yeah. of work, creator economy, blockchain, NFTs, like enterprise software, lots of other industries. And I am pretty bored of certain aspects of prop tech, but the fact you. is, you know, the fact is I get really good deal flow in prop tech because of my experience. <laughs> sure, in it. sure. And I am, I understand it pretty well. That so that's why I'm still investing a lot in prop tech, even though I, I'm trying to diversify a bit more. So for those who don't listen to as many different startup podcasts as I might to be able to follow along with all the Spencer was just saying somewhat of like an actor who's been somewhat typecast because of his (laughs) first big role. You're you're actually doing a lot more uh, innovative things than, than maybe other people realize, but you know, there's still some love there for the original thing that, that you had success with too. Well, well said. said. All right. Recon food. I want to go there because I have uh, four kids under the age of 16 myself and they two the youngest two boys are still homeschooled the girls when they got the seventh and eighth grade transition to school and when they were homeschooled I always had this vision of you know they're, they're done early they're, they're moving ahead they're they're doing great in their learning but now you have all this extra time and so I would like hey you want to start a YouTube channel what do you want to like what is your passion let's let's fill this extra time with something other than Roblox and 
and, and, uh, and whatever else. So, so I, I, we'll talk a little bit about recon food itself, but talk to me about as a father with a daughter. So you, you co-founded yeah. it together, but I'm, I'm really curious about the amount of kind of showing the way versus supporting mm-hmm. versus holding hands, working on it together. What, what'd that look like? So I have three kids, they're 16, 13, and 10. And I love involving my kids in my business as much as possible. Uh, yeah. When yeah, I, I heard in the to... podcast with your daughter, you guys have a tech news breakfast we did. time. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I used to, when I was a kid, I would come downstairs and my dad and mom would have three newspapers set up every day, New York times, wall street journal, LA times. And my dad was in the music business. So we also had daily variety, Hollywood reporter and billboard. So we'd have six you know, physical periodicals and newspapers every day at the, at the breakfast table. And we would basically read them together every morning and discuss them as, you know, as we went and we consume media online now, obviously. And so I miss the, I miss that opportunity. So what I do in my house is I print a lot of tech news, things I see on Twitter, blog posts, um, you know, summaries of podcasts, like anything interesting I, I see, I print it and I keep a stack of paper. And then, you know, whenever the family's in the kitchen, we, we do tech news or business news where I read an article and, and then out loud and ask them questions. It's a little bit, a little bit reading comprehension practice and a little bit <laughs> learning about the world around you. And it's just a great way to teach the kids. And, you know, during COVID, we were obviously on home quarantine for, gosh, more than a year. And during that time, we also started cooking a lot more as a family. And at around the same time, I had been on the board of TripAdvisor for a long time, maybe 10 or so years. And so I started saying to my family that I I had left the board of TripAdvisor at that point, and I was thinking about different startup ideas. And I said, you know, it always kind of bugs me about TripAdvisor that it's the average of a bunch of random people. Like, you know, if you, if I'm trying to figure out where to eat dinner in LA and I open TripAdvisor, it's the average of what tens of thousands of strangers have, have recommended. What I really care about is my, my five foodie friends, where are they going? And, Mm -hmm. you know, or the 20 friends that really know LA well, where are they eating? Um, So why isn't there a social layer on top of TripAdvisor? Now, my daughter, my oldest daughter, who's very immersed in social media and is on TikTok and Snap and, and Instagram all the time, like most teenagers, you know, she's like, okay, that's your problem, dad. My problem <laughs> is that social media sucks. That here I am on home quarantine. I haven't been able to see my friends in person in months. I'm doing homeschool. I'm on Zoom all the time. And I open up Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok to try to take a break from the all the awful things happening around us and look at my feed. And she'd literally show me her feed and it was like climate change, wildfire, you know, social justice, um, election hacking, you know, Russian uh, uh, meddling in the in the elections, uh, you know, all these awful things, COVID pandemic, people dying. And she's like, as a teenager, like, oh, my God, this is this is heavy stuff, you know, yeah, not, not the stuff you want to be. <laughs> That's how she felt. Yeah. So so she's like you know, but cooking actually is pretty cool. You know, cooking makes me happy. And so we kind of took my idea and her idea and smushed them together. And so what recon food is, is it's a vertical social network for food and it's to reconnect with your friends and family that, you know, that you haven't that over a shared love of food. And in our case, during quarantine, it was reconnecting with them because we hadn't seen them in a long time. And the, the reason that, um, you know, the reason I think there's an important place for it in the social media landscape is that horizontal social media like Instagram, for example, or Snapchat or TikTok are great, but 
there's a place for vertical social media that's that's category specific. So yeah. you've got all trails for hiking and Strava for running or or Peloton for uh, you know for cycling or running, um, and or LinkedIn is a perfect example. Like the things mm-hmm. that I share on LinkedIn, I wouldn't share on Instagram. Like I got a promotion or here's an article I wrote or you know my whatever like career stuff. That's okay in a LinkedIn yeah, setting. I feel like there's a battle right now for LinkedIn to stay that way, but well, that's that's it, a different you, podcast. You, you know what? You're <laughs> right. It, it's interesting, right? So Instagram is a perfect example where like. Instagram just wants audience. So they want you to post all that stuff on Instagram too. But the more like business stuff that makes the way to Instagram, the less kind of intimate it feels like, you right. know, it's not really sharing beautiful photos with your friends anymore. Now it's this, you know, promotional thing. And that's, that was the opening for Snapchat to take market share away from Instagram because that became sort of a more of a closed social network with your close friends. Anyway, the point is that recon food is because it's food specific. It's like, it's okay to post. I mean, I literally just posted a bowl, you know, this, this bowl <laughs> of, of, um, of special K with raisins in it, because that's how I make my raisin brand. I, I put special K and then I put raisins in it. And I've always kind of wondered if anyone else out there does that. And I would never post that to Instagram. Cause that's kind of weird that you know, people would be like, why is Spencer doing that on Instagram? But in a food social network, it's great. And there's going to be a robust conversation on recon about whether that's the right way to make raisin brand or not. And, you know, a food social network allows for that, whether it's home cooking or, or restaurant food. So that's why we created it. And it's been a, a family project, labor of love, but it's also, uh, it's a startup as well that's growing quickly. And I'm sure she's learning a lot about things beyond food. Totally. So she's the CEO and she, she, she's a software engineer and she runs it and she manages the engineering team and she's in Slack 24 seven. And, you know, she reviews code, you know, and we've got a great team distributive about a distributed team of about 10 people. And she's learning about management and business strategy and marketing and product development. And I'm not one to scream that college is dead, but when, when you get enough (laughs) use cases like this in the world, it's going to be a pretty compelling question as to whether you just invest in your your kids start up or send them to college. Well, so we're about to go on our college tour over spring break. So I'm still, I'm still long college personally, but mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying. You're, you're yeah. absolutely right that she's learned a ton. Um, maybe, maybe we're just understanding more and more and we just need to admit it altogether that it's, it's the network that you're building and the relationships you're making as much as what you're actually learning. You can learn anywhere, any, anyhow. Uh, wow. I, I totally agree. I totally. So I, I mean, I, I went to Harvard college and I can assure you that I learned that, that I have benefited much more and learned much more from my peers than from anything I actually learned in the classroom there. That, you know, if you, every class that I took, you could now find equivalent classes on YouTube or Coursera or wherever else and get a very similar academic classroom experience. What is very hard to replicate is putting a lot of motivated, high achieving people physically in the same place, putting them there for four years, letting them form friendships and connectivity and seeing what happens over it's the kind, rest kind of, of like their lives. It's kind of like cities themselves, right? Like why, exactly. why do you yeah. live yeah, exactly. in a physical space exactly. that you live in? <laughs> yeah. I, so I joined Recon Food because I want to have, in your words, a robust conversation around pancakes. And <laughs> I, I own ultimatepancakeblog.com because when I uh, semi-retire, I'm just going to travel the world and do to pancakes what other folks have done to pizza. And so I, I was on this morning. I noticed that pancakes outnumber waffles on your feed six to one. So I have to ask you know, from our friend Will from MI: Was the single waffle post? You said Team Waffle in your, but I think that was just an appeasement. 
right? Were you- so my co-founder of, of another startup called Q uh, started the hashtag Team Waffle on uh, on Recon Food. And so I, I use that as, a, as appeasement for him. Yeah. So yeah, I made waffles this morning. I posted waffles on Recon. Uh, um, uh, but I uh, much prefer pancakes. I like crepe, like very thin Swedish pancakes. And that's why um, I'm going to waste, you know, five minutes with one of the most important people in North America <laughs> to talk more about crepes because uh, my favorite, the, the best pancake I've ever had in my life, and and uh, President Obama and I agree on this is Pamela's PNG Diner in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where they have crepe cakes. So wow. it's crepes on the edge, crispy. The middle is not much thicker than a crepe, but it has a more muffiny texture. Uh, it's folded over like a crepe, brown sugar, sliced strawberries, and sour cream. Ooh. And there's nothing like he flew them to the White House after he. <laughs> Uh, went through the campaign trail and had to make pancakes for him because he agreed that they were his favorite too. Amazing. Well, I've never been there, but I will, I will go in Pittsburgh. He said, all right, Uh, I will put it on my list. And I'm, I'm, I'm deep in the Spencer, like, you know, in barbecue, you've got the smoke ring Yeah. there. There is a different test for pancakes, which is the absorption of the syrup and how (laughs) to, to what depth in the cake does the syrup absorb? Uh, wow. Well, speaking. you're, you're a pancake nerd. You, you, uh, this is recon is for you. Yes. Kevin. I'm, um, I'm going to, so, um, I mean, what we, the way we eat pancakes in my house is we use the Swedish pancake mix. I can't remember the name of the Lund's, of, I think Lund's. Yes. Thank you. There you go. Lund's Swedish pancake, which is very hard to find actually. Whenever I find it in a grocery store, I buy like 10 boxes and I use real butter so that the outside kind of crisps, um, uh-huh. instead of using like a Pam spray. Yeah. And then we put Nestle semi-sweet chocolate chips into it. We roll them up and we eat them with our hands. So it's based, it's a, it's really a chocolate crepe, not, not so much a pancake, but that's pancakes in our house. And the problem is it's hard to make them fast enough because I, I, yeah. I make them and put them on the, uh, on the cooling tray and I mostly, but sometimes the kids just keep <laughs> eating them at before, you know, and like, so, but we never actually even sit down. We just kind of eat them as we cook. Yeah. That's the only problem with pancakes is, is they do eat quick. Okay. Last pancake related question. Have you ever tried making able skeevers? No. What's that? Uh, that is uh, like pancake balls. And then you, you can inject them with different flavors. There's a whole different technique. You've got to put them in a pan that's that's got half. Is this like a Japanese? My wife used to make uh, I think it's also Swedish or, or, or somewhere in Scandinavia. Because oh, able no. skeever or German, maybe. All right, I'm on it. Uh, yeah, I'm on it. Gotta, I did try. I did just start making Dutch baby pancakes, which I just I, discovered. I saw that. That <laughs> I have, I've never attempted that. That would They're go really, really good. That's a whole other category. Uh, so there's dessert pancakes. There's savory pancakes. There's there's wow. uh, all different categories. I did you know? not. So, expect so to cover what I'm waiting this. for Sophia <laughs> to do is to build recon out to the point where then uh, you know she can get 20% of my pancake app that's based on recon powering you know as a platform. <laughs> I love it. I love and then it. All we right. can just you make heard it here first. Here first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Back back to back to uh, Zillow. I can't not ask this question, but I want to leave it as open as possible. What would you say were the biggest either ups or downs of that entire journey? I mean, a lot has been said. You've written a book and yeah. <laughs> and the rest, but let's see. Biggest surprise or biggest? So, uh, I mean, it was it was the greatest. The I'm so proud of my experience there. You know, it was it was such an extraordinary experience. I made so many great friendships. Um, what I'm most proud of was the company culture that we built. Um, it was a really special place to work. And we were frequently recognized as such by by those that judge that sort of thing. But I just, you know, the people were the most extraordinary part. And the downs, I guess, biggest surprise, you know, 
there was a lot of criticism along the way from many folks, you know, initially it was people that didn't like this estimate, whether it was real estate agents or, or consumers, then there was always this undertone from the real estate industry of, Oh, you guys are bad for the industry. You're going to put us out of business or, or, you know, Zillow is just the enemy for one reason or another. And then the move into I buying further exacerbated that. And then, you know, and then I, retired. And then a couple of years later, the move out of iBuying, which I'm not, um, I'm not there to have to worry about. So I'd say overall, Kevin, the, you know, I don't like the criticism like that, that I yeah. take that a little, pretty personally. Like I hate, I hate that. I think that brings us back to PropTech generally speaking, either because it's affecting other people's potential income streams, or just the fact that it's around the most emotional, the second most emotive word in the English language after the word mom, home, you're like, you're messing with my home. And so I think, and Picasso has gotten some of that same criticism, but I, I don't think in either case it's been warranted. And, and if you talk about any type of technology, you got to waver, uh, uh, way, you know, t- total good versus unforeseen consequences or foreseen consequences that some people may not like. And I don't think there's any question that in all the cases I'm familiar with that, that the net good is way, way yeah. higher. Yeah. Yeah. If I agree. I agree. It, it doesn't always feel that way in the mm. moment <laughs> when yeah. people are throwing tomatoes at you. And I've had, you know, I've had my fair share of tomatoes yeah. thrown at me, but, but you're right. Well, let's and, throw some uh, tomatoes at other people. I'm joking. We don't, <laughs> we don't, we don't do that, but you know, Facebook down big uh, in the stock. And even, um, you know, you talk about vertical social versus horizontal. I feel like Facebook groups is kind of a box out move from trying to get people to, pr- to create their own vertical networks mm-hmm. within it. But how do you think digital advertising, uh, not just in real estate, but just generally needs to evolve over time? Or is that also becoming just less interesting? Well, I mean, Apple really, really threw a, mm. threw a grenade at the industry. And the reason Facebook is having it, you know, it's no good, awful, terrible <laughs> week is because of Apple. And, yeah. you know, for those that don't know, Apple, well, you've probably, if you have an iPhone, you've experienced that Apple is now letting consumers opt out of certain tracking in their apps. And so it's very difficult for companies to do digital advertising. I see this actually with Recon because, you know, Recon's only on iOS and we've wanted to spend a little small dollars, small dollar budget on Facebook and Instagram to drive users to Recon. And we haven't because it, the instrumentation is just isn't there. Basically, yeah, it's just not we, as good we, as it was. we can't measure the efficacy of the spend. And so we're like, oh, forget it. We want advertising. So we're, we're not giving money to Facebook or Instagram as we otherwise would have because of Apple. So, you know, I don't think Facebook is missing our like thousand bucks a month, the, the missing recon budget, but that's, you know, but Facebook says it's 10 billion in total is what they're missing. Yeah. And I think I'm reading probably more into it because of places like Zillow, where that targeted, like the audience is already there. It just seems as we go further towards the essentially, to to me, there's some interesting things around TikTok, but it also, the algorithm is so base nature of of tapping into some of those same emotions, maybe more positive and humorous emotions than Instagram or, or Facebook in terms of its totality. But it's like, it's just a constant stream of entertainment that consumers aren't taking as much action on unless it's uh, apparel or, uh, mm-hmm. or food or, or other trends. But in terms of, the, uh, I saw something yesterday that Reels just is not as valuable. It keeps people on the platform, but they just don't know how to monetize it the same right. way. Right. And so does, does that mean that vertical digital advertising is also more well, uh, likely to be an important part of the future? Yeah, I, I think vertical, you know, more niche audiences mm-hmm. always monetize really well. 
so dot la for example is one of my other startups and dot la is a small website has a couple hundred thousand visitors a month but it is a media site that covers la tech so if you care about what's happening in the tech industry in los angeles you're reading dot la so now, if you're a company like an investment bank or a law firm or a venture capital firm that wants to market to that small audience of a couple hundred thousand people, .LA is a really good place for you to advertise and spend money. So these niche, vert- whether it's a vertical social network around food or a vertical news site around a single city's Or a vertical community. niche podcast about new construction marketing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. If you yeah, want to reach that. people that care about <laughs> new construction There's marketing. only 450 of them, but dang it, that's 90% <laughs> of the whole audience. Yeah. So, you know, we joke, but that's exactly right. So, I mean, the promise of digital advertising at scale, a la Facebook and Google, was that a marketer could spend money with one of those giant companies and they would find the couple hundred people that care about new construction marketing or the couple hundred thousand people that care about LA tech or the couple tens of millions of people that care about food within their, you know, within their network of sites or other sites where they power the advertising of. But that's becoming more difficult if you can't do tracking across these different yeah, sites, right, which is right. what Apple took away. So, you know, advantage.la, disadvantage Facebook, I guess, is is the yeah, answer. Yeah, hopefully you already built your audience over the last five, five years, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Last question. Well, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you talk about Offerpad. It's kind of a big deal sure, in, your, yeah, in your world, sure. the SPAC and 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 that business. So I took, I mean, I took three SPACs public: Supernova One, Supernova Two, Supernova Three. Supernova One. Uh, merged I need a better with... sound effect to go around those words. <laughs> I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, the the purpose of a SPAC, of course. For those that don't know, is you take public basically a shell company and it's publicly traded, and then you you find a private company that merges into it, and then the reason we named it Supernova is because supernovas then kind of explode and vanish, and the in our case the SPAC vanishes and and the company names changes its name to the name of the private company. So Supernova One was public; it merged with Offerpad. Supernova One fell away. Offerpad became the public company. Offerpad's a great company. They're very, you know, a very well-run iBuyer, the second biggest after Open Door. And I'm a huge believer in iBuying. And the fact that Zillow botched it and then choose to chose to withdraw from iBuying is great for Open Door and Offerpad. Now the public markets haven't <laughs> haven't agreed with that. You know, most public market investors have said, "Hey, if Zillow can't make it work, nobody can." You know, I'm out, and that's why Open Door is traded from 25 down to nine, and Offerpad has gone from 12 to four. But I, I actually think it's the exact opposite that that now that Zillow helped prove that home sellers love selling their home to an iBuyer, and then Zillow said, "Hey, but it's not for us." You know, all that did is create and much maybe, more running room for Open Door and Offerpad. Like you were saying, the innovator's dilemma of it, it from an, from the people who own Zillow stock uh, and and the board, perhaps it was. Uh, it's just going to be easier for someone else to make Nike than to change Converse because yeah, we invested yeah. in Converse to be Converse and we don't want you to, to fight too many uh, multi-front wars at once with our money. Yeah, I think but, that's, but, I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I'm not Zillow anymore, so I don't have yeah. insight, you know, into Zillow's decision to withdraw from iBuying. All I, all I know is looking at the data and also reading the research that I, I've, I've read both at Zillow and at Offerpad. I know that consumers love this product. Yeah. Like that's the irony is that there that what happened with Zillow is is not that they launched a product that people didn't like. It's that they launched a product that so many people like that they yeah. bought too many houses. <laughs> right. It was so successful. Right. And it had such good product market fit 
that they bought too much stuff. And I think um, we just crossed 1% <laughs> of the transactions last year were, were done using some form of iBuying. Something like that. Well. Yeah. I mean, and I believe it's going to become five to 10%. I actually think I use Nucon as a benchmark. I say that, you know, new construction mm -hmm. is kind of 10 ish percent of the market. You know, 10% of the time you buy a home from a builder, I see no reason why 10% of the time you won't buy a home from a, an iBuyer. Um, well, especially in the new construction sell. process when you've got flexibility on closing dates and other things, why exactly. wouldn't? 80% of the new con buyers want to take advantage of, of a simultaneous close or exactly. So I, I think it's a great product. Um, I think open door and offer pattern are going to be really successful. Um, you know, Zillow decided to, to withdraw from the category that, cause it wasn't for them, but, um, but that just is, is, is great news for open door and offer pad. Yeah. Spencer, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Uh, we'll definitely have, uh, the other folks you recommended on the podcast in the future as well, but, um, there you go, folks. One, you. one of the most important people in North America uh, in, in, <laughs> in the investment startup world, Spencer Raskoff. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs>